Today we have Dustin Hendrickson on the show. From owning a roofing company to building homes, duplexes, and apartments, Dustin has been immersed in the real estate world throughout his career. Dustin is a multifamily syndicator in South Dakota and the founder of MailboxMoneyRE.com, helping others invest the way wealthy people do. Dustin also has a very unique way of looking at amenities in new build apartment complexes. Get ready to dive into an insightful conversation about real estate investing, passive income, and more. I'm Darren Batchelder, an ex-corporate guy turned business owner and real estate investor. Have you ever wondered, how are you going to get from where you are today to where you wanna be with your retirement investments? We discovered a better way and we can help you get there. We have a four-step capital preservation and wealth building plan. Imagine having the financial freedom and time freedom to do what you want, when you want, and with who you want. A better way to preserve your capital, a better way to build your wealth, and a better way to save taxes. If you are a C-level executive or other high net worth individual and you want to find out how, then get started by scheduling your discovery call today at darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Dustin Hendrickson. Dustin, appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Darren. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So a little bit on how we know each other. This is actually our first time talking to each other. Um, but I reached out to Dustin. He, you know, I'm interested to see what he's got going on, man. This, this guy's he's on a bunch of podcasts and he's doing good things and he's in a different market. So I want to get an understanding for that market also. So uh, with that, can you share with the listeners a little bit about um, how many properties and how many units you're invested in? So I have about 15, I'm invested in about 15 passively. So I'm just an LP in those. And that's about 2000 units roughly. And then I am partners in over a thousand units where I'm on the GP team and my percentage ranges from anywhere from a hundred percent of those projects up to, you know, 5% of those projects, maybe even 3%, some of the big ones. Um, so yeah, we, what we focus on now though is wellness design, modern workforce housing. Basically we take an A-class, um, Building. Wait, slow down, slow down. That's well wellness design. Yes. Wellness design. Modern workforce. Modern workforce. Okay. So what does that mean? It's basically housing for professionals, young professionals. It's a really nice interior. It's all stripped out amenities. So you don't have to pay for all these amenities that most people aren't using. And right now, you know, it's stuff so expensive you're having to cut some things and so what we're cutting is the amenities and we're noticing that some people appreciate it most a-class buildings have tons of amenities there's very few a-class buildings that don't have any amenities and we find that they do really well 
Awesome. So is this like I've heard, I have not been a uh, partner or anything or, or invested in any of these types of deals, but I've heard of them in some of the urban markets where it's almost like a young professional dorm. Like the, there's kind of more hangout areas, and but the, the actual rooms are smaller. So there, is that the way that these are designed or is that, is that different? What we're doing now is not exactly like that, but yes, we do some of that stuff. If we're in a more urban setting, that's what we do. But right now we found that suburban areas are, the return on investment's much better at this point in the cycle. Um, people really wanna have a little more space, like a little more green space. Units are super nice. They're very close to town. They're just not in town. And then the rent is cheaper per square foot. So what amenities are you taking out? Uh, dog parks pools, garages, any common space, any common space that we can eliminate. So we're trying to eliminate hallways as much as possible now because they're a huge maintenance cost and you got to heat them and there's a lot of square footage there. So as much of those we can remove as possible. It's so interesting hearing this other side because I've talked to so many syndicators that are in, you know, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Dallas and I know a lot of syndicators in Dallas and Houston, San Antonio, and and a lot of them have kind of shifted up from the the BC into the A A minus B plus area, and they all talk about amenities. You know the the pool, the gym, the you know the having a really nice office, um, having the the lockers. Um, you know, so having a cool outdoor you know, barbecue area, like all these different amenities is what they talk about to try to attract people. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking at it from the other side saying, you know what, people aren't using a lot of that stuff. And so we can, we can take that out and then have the consumer, the, the tenant save well, money due to it. Well, I mean, amenities used to be new five years ago, 10 years ago, but everyone does amenities and everyone's going so overboard with the amenities. When I walk through most apartments, no matter what the amenity package is, it's almost always unused. Even the decking, people don't even sit on their decks. So majority of the time, people are at work, sleeping in their apartment or inside their apartment. They're very rarely on the grounds asleep. Um, so... If all the A-class has amenities, because it's always had the amenities, well, we have A-class that doesn't have any amenities, and now we're 15% cheaper, but we cut maybe 25% of our cost off. And a lot of maintenance, a lot of maintenance and a lot of overhead. So how big are these uh, properties? So the one we're doing right now is 180 units. It's a two-phase project. We'll do roughly 90 units right off the bat. Yeah, so I mean, they're they're good-sized properties. It's just... And, and they're, they're ground up development, they're brand new? Yeah, so they're just like the old garden style used to be, right? So you used to have a garden style apartment that was really nice, didn't have anything in it but units and garages. We have even went so far as we're taking the garages out. Because um, usually people don't park in them, they're just storage. They're not necessarily necessary. I don't know if, that's, does, if that makes any sense, but that you could use those words in English, but... Uh, there, it's one of the things where you can cut it out and, you know, if you give people the option of getting the upgrade, a lot of times they're not taking it anymore. 
So all these C-class things that we have that aren't workforce housing that used to be A-class when they were first built, with their garages, all those, most of those garages are empty is what we're finding, unless you include it with the rent, but you're not really getting a rent bump. So we're putting this all together, and it seems to me that a garage is too expensive for what the return you get for it. So let's start cutting them out. We tried it, and then actually it has been working fantastic. Um, and we have room on the property if we do need to add a garage later, if it doesn't work. So we can, you know, we can take that open air parking and turn it into garage parking. Awesome. So, what market are you in so that? Uh, the, majority, the majority of our development now is Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And there's, a, they're having a big growth spike. And so they're going from, a, you know, $250,000 or 250000 community to a 500000 person community. And they have the infrastructure basically in place to just continue this growth. And they have tons and tons of jobs. What's driving the growth? Uh, healthcare, banking, ag. Very diverse economy, and then plus with ag, you're pulling commodities out of the ground. Whenever you you know have a commodity that's valuable, every year there's cash product there. So how are so I saw in in uh, one of your um, documents that you you had units during the a prior oil boom. You know, so is this area this is you know prone to no? To be, so that's that's North Dakota. North Dakota, Dakota is the oil boom, and we got in on a flood cycle and out at the peak oil boom somehow. That worked out great for us. But that market booms and busts. The market we're in is very steady. It doesn't boom or bust. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So you got into that market um, in the past, but you're not in it right now. Right. It was more of a quick cash flip type of thing when we were doing a lot more hands-on work in my gotcha. earlier career, for sure. So talk about your earlier career. What did, you know, what were you doing before you got into real estate? Uh, well, I started as a roofer. I went to school to be an engineer and then I just realized I don't want to be an engineer. I'm not, I don't have the same quite a, kind of mind as my dad. It's similar, you know, but everyone in my family is an engineer and I kind of have a little different mentality. I wanted to work for myself. I thought it'd be harder to work for myself. So, so I, is that how you're different? It's just that you wanted to work for yourself or uh, you said your mind yeah, is different? Yeah, I don't know. I have, I don't know. I'm just, my personality is a little different, a little bit more wild. Uh, it'd be hard for me to work for somebody. Like, I don't know how I would do it. It'd be I just tough. had a feeling you were going to say something that was, you know, out, out there in terms of the difference between you and, and the rest of your family. No, I mean, I'm, I have like, more, I have an autistic side, I guess I have, I mean, I'm, I feel like sometimes I'm on the spectrum, um, self-diagnosed of course. Um, but my, my son is on the spectrum and we do a lot of things just this exactly the same. So I'm not I'm like, I'm very insensitive. I have to like, like turn turn into a different person to have empathy. I have to think about it. Like I have to be, you know, just become a little more aware or something. I can be kind of robotic, I guess. So it doesn't, criticism doesn't really hurt me. It doesn't really affect me very much at all. I can still just go through that kind of stuff. So I have a little bit thicker skin. And so I, I don't know. I like the, I'm real, I'm a true entrepreneur. It has kind of been my whole life. So I, I went into roofing and then I realized that Every time I went, I wanted to do the next step. And I was like, hey, I like these houses better than I like being up on the roof. And I was like, let's start doing this, designing these and building these. So I started doing that. And we started renting some of them. And we realized that renting them was the best 
long term because we would sell an asset and then we just wouldn't have it. We'd make a few bucks, you'd buy something, and you know when the money's gone and you don't really know where it's at versus buying an asset, it's just always right there. So it's like a forced savings plan. So we started realizing that was good. Then we started scaling and expanding because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. But I was going in all types of different directions. Like I, instead of just scaling into multifamily, I had a division that would do single family homes, custom homes. We would start to hold develop portable housing developments. We were buying flips. We were buying flips apartments. We were buying flip houses, flip apartments that we'd keep. We're buying some downtown stuff, some historical stuff. We're trying to fix up the downtown. We're just doing everything, building multifamily as well. And asset manager, property manager, all that stuff. Um, we shed the property manager fairly quickly, but we still, like, we had, we did everything. And so I That's just ran into a spot where we just were flatlining. We felt busier than ever before. We weren't making any money. So I got into, I went to a syndication thing in Nashville, I think, in, like, 18. And that's where I met Omar, who I partner with currently. And I learned that you have to scale into one vertical silo, basically. Like, like Warren Buffett always says, you got to focus intensely to make the most money. So I really like multifamily. So I really focus on multifamily. And it gets easier and easier for me to turn down deals that aren't multifamily all the time. And I just continue to focus on the multifamily and it just gets easier now a 150 unit project or a 100 unit project is you know easier than it used to be to do a 30 unit project so part of that is is the knowledge part of that is is mindset too right i mean like yeah. in the beginning some people think they could only get involved in something that's small like you know that's that's all they could think that their mind could achieve and then all of a sudden you start doing these bigger deals and you're like I, I, these bigger deals can actually be easier yeah. and, and, and it's, it's scaling more. So, um, but well, yeah. your mind has to believe that you can, you can do it. A hundred percent. And I believe that it's, you have to scale, you can scale slower than you think as well. Like you, you can do go from one unit to two units. You don't have to go from one unit to 10 units to 50 units. You can go one to two to four to eight to 12, to 20, to 40. But once you get into that roughly 40 range, it becomes, um, it doesn't matter. You can't really do, you can't really make an impact by yourself anymore. So you have to, you can't rely on yourself to save any projects, I guess. That's what a lot of people think like, oh, well, if this goes up the budget, I can go do it. Or if this happens, I can go and, and be the PM and save the 7%. Well, once I get to a certain point, that's not feasible anymore. So you have to make it, figure out how it works. Once I, once I think you get to that scalability point now, it doesn't matter if you do a 40 unit or a 120 unit. It's all about just collecting the money, I guess. So as long as you build out your investor base and you can collect all the money, that's your only, that's only going to be your only hurdle. That's the only part that's different. Yeah. I, I agree. And, and, you know, when you were talking about doing one, two, four, eight, you know, I, I had uh, somebody that came on and he said that he had that goal set. So he, he was one, two, four, and then he was like, when he got to, I think, eight, he was like, you know what, what if, what if I change that goal from eight to something bigger? So he went from one, two, four, and then I'm like, so what did you make it? He's like, 800. I'm like, holy cow, like, that's a big difference, eight and 800. Like, and so where'd you end up? 
He's like 424. And, you know, if he had, you know, the goal of eight, he probably would have ended at eight, you know, but he thought he could do 800 or he changed, you know, he moved the goalpost down further and he didn't get there, but he got a whole heck of a lot farther than he originally thought he could. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's almost all about mindset. Pretty much every decision that you make comes down to mindset. And so are you making emotional decisions with a small mind or are you making rational logic decisions with an expanded mindset? You know, cause I don't know. You just hear a lot of negativity and stuff. And then you ask people, well, how often does that happen? And they're like, it's never happened, but it might. And I was like, well, why are you like, if you've clearly, this has happened, all this happens 99% of the time and you pull out a never going to happen. Why do you put more weight on the never going to happen than the 99% of successes that had happened before so and what what are the answers that you get back they just don't really even see it like that they just make up and they're just emotional by that point or whatever so then they just give another reason people are afraid to lose right yeah i mean people more people are afraid of that one in a hundred time of losing than of winning the other 99 times yeah you know so i mean you probably have friends or people in your network that are like Dude, Destin, how'd you how'd you do it, man? Like, and you might even spend time like teaching them. And then there's some people that they'll grab a hold and they'll they'll learn. But there's some people that it doesn't matter how much time you spend with them, they're just not gonna take action. Right. Because they're afraid. Yeah. Well, I say people ask me that now, and I used to tell them like a few years ago, I used to just say, oh, persistence and this and that and whatever uh, traits that I received, but. And now I just say it's all God. I control like 1%, which is my effort. And the other 99% is all this stuff happening perfectly around me in this whirlwind that just tends to happen in my favor all the time. And I think when you operate on the on a certain mindset, that's what starts happening to you. No, that's great. That's great. When people talk about like multifamily as a team sport, I think that, you know, if, if you have God on your side, that's the best team member ever, you know? So um, you could have a lot of other stuff happen and you could figure out a way, you know, with, with him on your team. So talk to me about this, this, the South Dakota market. I don't know much about that market. So, you know, what, what is that market like? Is it, is it more like the Midwest where it's a cash flowing market? Yep. Is it? It's um, a cash, it's a cash flowing market. It's definitely not a high appreciation market, but it can be at certain times and it can cash flow so high that it's just worth being there. Um, I, and then you, I mean, I, depending on if, when you, so when you develop before so much appreciation. So when I look at that, when I develop, yes, there's a lot of appreciation, especially in the first five years, massive amounts, because getting the building totally stabilized. So I am forcing appreciation. I feel that in this area, there's more of an opportunity because there hasn't been such a focus on design. It's always been a focus on value since ever I, I can remember. So the majority of apartments are value-based. So if you separate yourself through design, there's this massive pool. And with the Instagram age and everything, it's like just it keeps getting more and more like the HGTV, everyone's more aware. And so then you have these trendy units and there's just not that many. 
in all of the market. You know, there's 20,000 units and maybe a thousand of them are nice. And, you know, a thousand of them might be nice. 2,000 might be nice, but then they're still not that great of design. So out of them, maybe 500 have really, really good design. So, and most of the stuff that has good design is condo, so it's not rentable. Um, and so that's what we do. Is that's where we separate ourselves. But our occupancy is is almost always at 100%. Wow. And, you know, we try to raise rents to a certain point, and we feel like we've hit the max rent, and we can still fully rent out every unit. Um, and so we, our occupancy is very, very high with the design that we do, and our concessions are extremely low. Our bad debt is almost zero. Um, our marketing is actually very low because we do a lot of organic marketing through Facebook and different posts and just talking about our projects all the time. Lots of times developers are old and they don't like they don't like social media. So if you're developing right. and you're putting everything on social media, you're like the only one talking about yourself. So I could I could see that, you know. I mean and, you know, to be a developer, typically you have to have funds, right? I mean, so People are typically older, yeah. You know, um, to have developed, um, to have the capital to do that. So, you have one partner. Is that no? I have two. I have two main two partners, partners, and then you know we have uh, we have other co GPs and stuff. But the two main partners that construct everything are Caleb Veldhaus and Omar Khan. Omar Khan is the financial. He's a CFA, so he's a brilliant numbers guy. And then Caleb is in is a attorney that decided he didn't like being an attorney as much as he liked developing and uh, having a general contracting business. Awesome. So talk about developing versus buying. You've done both buying existing and developing, which, which do you like better? Which do you think has the better returns? What are the different, you know, risk profiles? I think the overall better return is always development because you always add in a lot more vacancy and concessions and bad debt than normally happens on development. Um, so the upside is much higher. Um, everyone wants to live in a new place, so they're easier to rent. Your income seems more steady. I guess on an older place at times, you can have a little more cash flow here and there, although not with the rates now and the pricing now. So in my opinion, development, you can just always develop. And acquiring, you have to pick and choose your spots when you're going to acquire it's like right now, it's really hard to acquire unless you're getting off-market deals or cold calling old owners or, or buying existing. Because the pricing doesn't doesn't work. Yeah, because the yeah the numbers just never the numbers are just tough for me, right? So an insurance company can come in and buy it, but they're not giving so much of the money. You know, they only need a five percent return or whatever. We need to provide like twenty percent. Right. So how do you? What's the equity like in your deals? Is it you and your partners, you bring in equity partners. Oh, yeah. Know, we, are you always- we raise capital. We use some of our own and we raise capital. We're doing so many deals right now that we'd never be able to fund them ourselves. Okay. Um, and we, we're usually in between that 10 to 20% of each deal we fund. That's how much money we put in there. Um, and then we are always fronting the project. And so we, we use our cash at the beginning, take it out so we can use our cash for the next one. So we are using more cash and more resources than it would appear from, you know, just looking at how much money we put in. So how do you, how do you end up going about um, finding new equity partners? 
Um, but we just talk to everybody and, you know, say, Hey, you want to come out and check out the project? We'd love to, we love to discuss real estate people and show them what we're doing, why we like the market, where our current contracts are on new chunks of land. Um, so we like to just explain what we're doing. We're trying to get to a thousand units per year. So we definitely need to be able to raise a lot of equity. Um, like right now our raise is roughly $5 million and we got like 11 and a half million dollars in debt. You know, so we need to raise, we'll need to raise something like that again in another two months and then another two months after that. So we have deals lined up where we're trying to get to a thousand units. So that's roughly going to be 10, 10 deals a year. Awesome. That's, that's awesome. Um, do you do, um, how do you set up the, the deals? Do you set them up as individual syndications? Do you set up a fund that you're raising? We do into? it. Right now we're doing individual syndications on every deal because we, I personally like that power, um, but we do, we don't like to have to do all the attorney work every time. So like we're trying to figure out how, how we can do a fund model and, a like how can we just raise the funds and then put them into this LP structure you know so we're we're still learning how to do that stuff we can accept 1031s we're getting really good at accepting 1031s we've had a 1031 exchange on and a tick on every one of our past three deals this fourth this deal we're doing now is no different we're also accepting are, more are those repeat 1031 guys or how, how are the 1031s finding out that they well i did two 1031s myself so i'm a repeat 1031 into my own okay the other guy no he only had that one 1031 so he is not a repeat we had a repeat on a 1031 but somehow they had handled the initial part of it and they we didn't they didn't in, get introduced to our people soon enough and so they kind of botched up the front end of it so he ended up having to not 1031 and bring his money in but he like so most of our customers are repeat though for sure but that that's an interesting one because like people there's a big time crunch on 1031s right so yeah you, you know you sell your deal you got to find a new deal and then if you're running up into the time constraints you know some people don't know that they can invest in another syndication with that 1031 and so that's a you know, a nice avenue. And it's, it's kind of, you know, it could be kind of passive because they're, you know, bring, there's already partners that are managing the deal. Yeah, it, it would be passive unless somehow you came in and took the entire thing down, you know, then, you know, we've not had, we've had nobody do that yet, but it would be a possibility. If someone did that, then we would have, they would be obviously not passive. They would have some sort of role. I think they'd have to, but yeah, that's why we're trying to get the word out about the 1031 so you don't go and start the 1031 before contacting us because it's so easy if you just have the right people involved right away. Right in the beginning. Yeah, because they do all the work. You don't have to do anything. You just you know let them do it. And it's not, it's not that bad. The process is easy for the investor. So now that you've done, you started out with small like duplexes and then grew from there. I mean, I think you started back when? 2005? 2003 is when we got started. 2003. Yeah. So 20 years you've been doing it. So you started with duplexes and now you're doing 180 unit deals. Like, do you go back to doing duplexes? What do you like better, small or large? Um, I like the, the small stuff for the, um, 
for the experience, like you, you want to get experience, you're way better off screwing up a duplex and you can, you know, you can go in there and even help yourself out with some jams. You screw something up on a 180 unit and the whole team feels it, you know? Um, I like though, the fact that I get a design cool, neat stuff now, like bigger stuff that's in the public eye. I get to provide architecture, which is technically public art. So I've always kind of been artistic, and so to be able to provide something like that, plus provide uh, for it's for a lot of times it's affordable. Some of the luxury stuff's not affordable, but we provide a lot of affordable housing and really really nice living conditions for people. So I really like that too. So I like the idea of doing more units. I like the idea of when I do more units, I have all these people under me that I can help and I can I can provide a lot of knowledge and experience for those people as well, and that's cool to kind of spread that real estate knowledge. Have you gotten involved in any low income tax credit type deals? No, not really. I mean, we use vouchers on some of our stuff, but we have not, but we are starting to look more into it now that we are, um, now that rents are getting so high that we might be able to make some of this stuff pencil to have so much affordability in certain units. Right. Is the community looking for, for more of that? Uh, I think grow? every community in every area, <laughs> except for maybe some super wealthy communities are looking for this. Because if you also do the low income housing properly, you eradicate crime as well. Because if you bright, light it up really bright, you do some certain things. Now you're giving and providing an even safer place for those, for that demographic. And so I think that it does improve. And so when it's placed properly the, and it's done properly, the, neighborhoods appreciated but i think it's needed everywhere basically trailer parks that aren't trailers they're just houses that's kind of what is it needed almost across the whole nation it's crazy and you're, you're true it's true i mean people are spending so much of their percentage wise of their income on housing that they need people need a, an affordable place so what about inflation how does how does um real estate help investors stay ahead of inflation because it rides the wave if anything i mean it's cash flowing asset you're buying a business so that's the beauty of real estate is that you may got to remember you're buying a business so when we're developing a property we're adding tons of value because we're starting up a cash producing asset on ground that's not producing anything and is a liability so you're turning something from a liability to a cash cow. And when you do that, there's tons of value created. Someone will come in and buy it for way less than you have into it. So we develop in place at roughly an eight cap, something like that. And we can sell these at, in between a four to five cap because they're very desirable, very desirable locations. We find though that most people don't sell these things. They keep, they seem to keep them. So it's hard to buy the harder to buy the, the nicer stuff for That's sure. That's interesting. Now, I've, I've heard, do you keep your investors in all the way through, like lease up and then, and then hold? Yeah. Cause I've heard, I've heard some people yeah, so that we, will bring the investors in, like buy the raw land, get it entitled. Then some investors get out yeah. and then some, then some new ones get in at that point and they'll take ground up and, and through lease up and then they, you know, and others will so in the whole period. When, yeah, if we create a land bank, which we're kind of close to doing, we'll need to do that exact strategy. But what we are doing at this point is that when we create one of those deals where we both buy the land and make it something, it's we create so much value 
that we have the investors that we do let in, we make them put that money then into the new deal as well, because they're ta- they're more than doubling. So you've got this website, um, you know, mailbox money website. Do you also coach people on how to obtain I don't, passive income? I don't have, a, you don't? yeah, I don't have a thing where I coach them, but I mentor some people. I help some people. I don't really have time to coach, but if you wanted to deal with, you know, reaching out to me and, you know, sometimes you get a hold of me, sometimes you don't, blah, blah, blah. But if you're okay with that style of mentorship, I'm fine mentoring people as well. Most people don't stay with it. They don't have the tenacity, but I want to make it a pain in the butt because if it's a pain and you continue to do it, that means you're really interested. I don't like cater to my mentees, I should say. But one of them now works for me, so I have to I cater to him. So he, he works with me. Oh, that's funny. He became I my met with one guy, guy, and he said, um, you know, he loved to, to help people, just like what you're saying, And but he would talk to people that would reach out, and he would never know if they did anything. So he started to charge for coaching, not because he wanted to really make a lot of money off of it, but because for the same reason he wanted to know that they were actually doing something, you know, you want yeah, to, that, if you're investing your time, you want to know that the person's going to take action. Yeah. That is a thing. I think that, you know, immediately if someone's interested, it feels like they, like they just quit reaching out almost instantly. You start holding them accountable a little bit and that some people continue to call and, you know, you kind of want to help them as much as possible. I think it takes a long time. I don't think people can just, get your advice and go do anything. I think it does take years. So you do have to have a lot of patience with it too. I just treat it as like, if, if I'm helping these people and I'm giving away this time, then hopefully, you know, so it'll help me somewhere along the line. And people have helped you. I'm sure like most, most people that I know that are successful, they've had help along the way. Um, they've been willing to ask for it. And when they received help, they, you know, they took that and, and used it. Um, but, you know, go back to when you, when you got started, how did you end up getting into the, into the game? Like, did you use your own capital? Did you have well, a mentor no, that you went to? My your mom, mom helped. helped you. Yeah, but I get help from people constantly, every day, constantly. People do stuff for me, help me. I'm just, I'm super blessed in that regard. But yeah, my mom put up the money and I put up the work. Awesome. So she believed in you, you know, and then and then you had a track record and then you were able to parlay that into to more deals and then grow from there. And now it's 20 years later and you're doing things that the community is is do, doing write ups on. Yeah. Very cool. So. Do you get involved with going to conferences and, and speaking? Like what, what's your, your take from that perspective? Well, I don't, I don't speak too much. I'm not very, I'm not just like, a, I'm terrible at doing that, which I'm not supposed to say that because I'm supposed to say I'm good at it. So my mindset will think that, but <laughs> it's like one of the most, the worst things I can think of is to speak publicly, but I don't mind being in public and speaking. I just don't like to get up there and like, oh, you're relying on me to have this great speech because that's definitely not me. I wish I had that charisma, but I can have that charisma sort of just on the Q&A side. So I like to be involved in panels, things like right. that. Um, just I don't know. I, I, I'm just I'm, I'm just not into speaking. I don't really want to prepare a speech, all that stuff. It 
speech was one of my worst classes. I did okay at it, but it was still one of my worst classes and just one that I dreaded all the time. What about just uh, networking with other real estate investors? Oh yeah, that's easy. Yeah. And what value do you get out of doing that? Um, sometimes I meet some awesome people. Sometimes I just have a conversation. Sometimes to be honest though, like some of them conversations, I get zero value out, but that's just how it goes. Sometimes personalities don't mix. They just move on and go to the person that you do. Like one guy, I might never see him again, but he told me all about airplanes and how they worked and how commercial pilots move around. And it was really nothing. We just didn't talk anything about real estate. I was just talking to him about his cool job. That's funny. It, it, that's true, though. I mean, that's true with going to conferences, right? I'll go to a conference and I'll see, you know, six speakers and I'm like, no value, no value, no value. You know, like, and then all of a sudden the fourth guy, I'm like, holy cow, that's a great idea. If I apply that to my business, like I could really, you know, blow it out. And you had to kind of sift through a bunch of stuff to get to the good stuff. And yeah. I think talking to syndicators too, it could be no, done that, done that, done that, you know, nothing new. And then all of a sudden, you know, whatever, some, somebody had a fire at their property and then you kind of just have it in the back of your head. And, you know, if all of a sudden you have one at one of your properties, you could call that person. Be like, how'd you, how'd you manage through this? You know, how'd the insurance company work, you know? And so you have these conversations and you can use that as to, or, hey, we did this type of value-add play. Like for me, with talking to you, I've never talked to anybody that's focused on A, new development, but is taking out all the amenities, right? Yeah. And, and so that's, that's really an interesting concept to me, you know? Yeah, I mean, I met my really, really good partner, and at first I didn't think it was anything, and somehow we're, like, really good partners, like, almost as good as it gets in any type of partnership. And, and where so where did you meet him? I met him in Nashville at the first Jake and Gino conference. That's, you know, that's crazy when people talk about, so there's there's some people are like, you know, I think that these conferences are a waste of money. And look, it can be, right? If you go there and you just listen and you don't take any action, but you could, there are people and you're, you're proof right there. You, you went to a conference, and you met your business partner. How long have you been partners with them? Five years now. Five years. You yeah. know, you've met your business partner from from that, you know, going to that conference. I joined a multifamily mentorship group in, in the Dallas market. I met a gentleman from, from Chicago. And I partnered with him on my first syndication deal. Like, I never would have met him had I, you know, not been involved in, in this group. Um, so... You never know what's going to happen, but you still have to kind of get out of your comfort zone and talk to people yeah. and tell them what you're yeah. looking for. Definitely. So where do you think the market goes from here? I mean, look, I mean, everybody's been... been where does I, I think the market goes? I think it goes yeah. higher. I think it goes think higher. I don't know how long it's going to take to go higher, but what I think is that we are somehow normalizing these insane prices right now. They're just getting normal to us. Psychologically, we're going to figure out how they're worth this value at this interest rate. And when market, when interest rate drops, it's going to compress the cap rates. And then it's, it's further going to increase the values. I, 
I don't see this huge tsunami of green deals coming. I don't know where they're at. It doesn't seem like they're coming. Maybe they come in two years. Maybe they keep the interest rate high for another two, three years, maybe. Right. I just, most of these deals get bought up by massive companies too. They're just insurance companies gobbling them up or whoever can write a single check. So they're not here. Those little guys aren't really getting a shot at that. Like they say syndicators only make up like 4% of the entire multifamily space. Is that right? 4%? Yeah, it's not very big. I didn't realize it was that small. Yeah, it's mostly institutions and family office and different things. Very few syndication. It, it's interesting because I, I think that there's a lot of, I mean, look, transaction volumes are down like 80%. Um, you know, everybody's been consistent talking talking about that. Uh, um, institutions have been kind of off. Um, but, you know, I read about family offices and family offices are like, they are allocating more to multifamily um, and, than they were before. So you know, there are people that are going to step into the market and, and pick it up. And the, you know, one of the questions I, I have, cause there's a lot of syndicators that I've talked to, they're like, Oh, they're licking their chops. Like the second half of this year, there's going to be all these deals. And I don't know if there, if there are going to be all these, you know, distressed deals. No you one's know? seeing any so far. Right. Nobody's I mean, seeing them. And there's a lot of people that says they think they're already, they're not, they think they're not happening. Not for us anyway, maybe for some players, you know, and it could be that, if you think about the lending environment, right? I mean, that's because that's where a lot of people say that all these deals are going to come is the bridge loans that are coming due and this year and next year and et cetera. But, you know, a lot of these bridge lenders, they may be involved in multifamily, but they may be involved in office too. And office is a much bigger headache for them right now. So it's kind of an easy decision for them to say, you know what, I'll just extend it for a year. You know, yeah. if you can continue to make the mortgage payments, I'm not going to force, you know, yeah. I know you're not, who, you're not who wants to come payments. in right now. Who wants to come in and take over a multifamily? It's kind of like yeah. hotels when COVID hit, dude, nobody yeah. lost their hotel. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. And, and they're going gangbusters now. Right. Yeah. Um, holy cow. I remember when it used to be, it used to be like $500 a night was, was ex crazy expensive and now like you know you go to try to find an upscale resort in cabo and they're like thousand bucks right thousand dollars a night i'm like that's crazy you know but yeah. that's that's the market so um you're the second person i had somebody on that actually dealt with family offices and he thinks that the market is going to continue to go up until, and that we won't have another recession until like 27, 28. Yeah. Um, I think the inflation is just going to wipe out all this debt kind of like your, your debt doesn't look as bad once it all inflates away, you know? That's true. It's, it's, you know, there's been so much talk that this recession is going to hit and that these higher interest rates are going to cause all this distress and, um, and look, I'm seeing distress. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, if you're an LP in all these deals, you probably see it too. I mean, I'm an LP oh, in yeah. a lot of deals and, and I've had distributions cut. I've had distributions where I'm not getting them anymore. Um, you know, because, you know, ca cash flow is being negatively impacted based on higher debt service. And, but it's a matter of can people hold on and yeah. get through it? 
And, and also, like a year from now, are interest rates still where they are or are they lower? You know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, who knows where they're at? I know that eventually, though, the real estate's going up all throughout history, but just it always goes up. And if you even look at markets that used to be dominating the world, like what, Dutch, England, you look at them, them and their real estate's still sky high. They never went down and they lost their world economic status and everything. Yeah, I don't know. Like What I tell people is I don't know what's going to happen in three months, six months, a year, but... You know, I'm in Dallas. I don't know about some other markets, but here, I just three years, five years, ten years from now, I just think there's going to be more people living here. There's going to be more, you know, competition for apartments, more jobs, more income, and I think that real estate values are going to go up. You know, over, yeah. over the medium to long term. I don't know what's going to happen in the in the shorter term. You know, that's the yeah. No matter where I go, and when it's a desirable area, no matter what community, you go to the desirable part, desirable parts of that community. The new, it's all new and nice. It's all full. Every every apartment that I want to buy is almost always full. No matter if in Atlanta or Dallas or Sioux Falls or wherever we're at, everything's full. It's crazy. Right. If it's full, and then and then single family people are sitting on. 3%, 4% interest rates, they're not going to sell their house. Right? Yeah. And those okay. don't, those, those don't balloon at all. Those are 15 or 30 year mortgages. They're, yeah, they never have to pay those. Right. So they're, they're just going to sit there. And so, in any event, um, so you've done a ton. Where do you, where do you go from here? Like, what's your um, next big stretch goal? We want to vertically integrate. We want to do wall panel factories. So we buy all our own lumber trusses all that stuff. We want to create all that vertically integrate. That can be another facet. And then we also wanted maybe do some development in a place like Northern Dallas. Awesome. Um, that's where I live. So you come to Dallas, you look me up. Um, it's, it's going gangbusters here. And I live close to where uh, they just put in the PGA headquarters. And so I went to the senior uh, it was it was one of the major senior PGA, um, one of the major events, and it's like a five hundred million dollar property, and like that's just one development. Then there's another development that's going up that's going to be several billion dollars. Like it's just it's just crazy the amount of capital that is flooding into some of these different markets. Dallas um, has incredible infrastructure. You should meet with Omar. If you're in Dallas, you should meet with Omar. So is Maybe he in Dallas? Come, he might want to come on your show too, Omar Khan. Is he in partner. Dallas? Yeah, he's in Dallas. You know, I think I know of Omar, but I don't know. I haven't met him. Uh, but yeah, yeah, when we stop recording, let's, you know, we'll exchange info and yeah, we'll get him on and I should meet up with him for sure. Um so, hey, if people want to get to know you better, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, mailboxmoneyre.com, as in real estate. Mailboxmoneyre, as in real estate.com. Mailboxmoneyre.com, and that has all of our, the portal, the email. You can reach out to me on Calendly. Everything's in there. You can see what we've been doing lately, our Instagram links, all that stuff. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing with the listeners. I, I really like the fact that you've got a different angle. Now, did was anybody else doing that? The 
different design or did you just have um, a vision for it and then decide? This is it? just what I've been doing. I've been able to take liberty because I live in a fairly liberal city. So I've been able to, they've granted me the liberty to do some really cool stuff here. And so when I saw cool stuff happening in Minneapolis or Colorado and like at the epicenter of where the cool stuff happens, I would try to somehow bring that back on a, you know, a smaller, cheaper scale and do stuff like that here. And then they allowed me to continue to, to do that. You know, like most, like most banks would not let you put in a whole, a whole apartment full of 30 studios when no one's ever done it in town. They let me do that. Like, so I got away with a bunch of, things that normal developers well, for whatever reason wouldn't be able to get away with maybe i was able to sell my vision whatever they took a chance on me but it worked out really well because you start realizing that people actually want to live this way and they're prevented from doing it from the system because the system doesn't have cops so they don't want to get they want to put that in the system so you kind of break into the system and then you're you're way farther ahead of everybody and you figured out how you can sell it as well so a new guy might come in and they might not, the banks might not let them do all studios just because very few people do that. Yeah, that's very, it's very cool. No, I applaud you. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, we'll, we'll talk after we stop the recording and uh, talk about getting together with Omar. And uh, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Uh, definitely reach out to Dustin and we'll talk next week. See you. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at DarrenBatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.